Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you guys so much for leading us in worship this morning. Well, you know, in the first part of uh, James chapter 2, in that first beginning opening, uh, James deals uh, extensively uh, with with the sin of partiality. Now, remember what that is. The sin of partiality is treating somebody, all right, whether for the good or whether for the bad, based solely on outward appearances. In other words, it's really kind of judging a book by its cover. It's, uh, it's treating somebody based on what you ultimately think that you can get out of them. If you can get something good out of them, hey, you treat them good. If you can't get anything out of them, well, then you know what? You don't treat them uh, so well. And James, in the beginning of chapter 2, really taught very clearly that, that there is no place in the Christian faith for this particular sin of partiality. In fact, he showed that it's inconsistent with the faith that we say that we hold on to. He said it's inconsistent with who we are, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and to treat each other in any different way is inconsistent with that family unit that God has, has made us. He said it's inconsistent not only because of who we are, but because of what we profess. We profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow his ways. And guess what? Jesus never judged a person on how they looked. It was always the content of that person's heart and the condition of their heart. And then we finally found that it was also inconsistent, not only because of who we are, not only because of what we profess, but it was inconsistent in what we receive. And what we've received is the grace and the mercy of God. God doesn't judge us by our works. He judges us based on what? The works of Jesus Christ. He's given us grace. He's given us mercy. And he expects us to be able to treat others with the same grace and mercy that you and I have been shown. So here's, here's what he's done. That's everything that he's taught us for the first seven verses. He says, look, it's inconsistent with the Christian faith. Now, let me believe, let me tell you what I think happened. Some of you have talked to me about last week's sermon. I think this is what has happened. I think after we left, or at least during the sermon, as you were hearing the word of God preached, and the Holy Spirit began to work on your heart, I believe that some of you found the same place, you went to the same place I did. You found a deep sense of conviction as the Holy Spirit began to reveal in, in your heart maybe some prejudices and some areas that you yourself have been guilty of, of maybe judging people um, simply because of the way that they look. And my prayer for you was this, is that it didn't rest there in guilt, but there was a repentance and an acknowledgement of the goodness and grace and forgiveness of God, and that this week you sought to live completely different. And this week what you did is when you begin to come face to face with people, very instantly the Holy Spirit moved you to extend grace and mercy and love and acceptance and gentleness to whoever it was based on whether they could do something for you or not. That was my prayer for you this week. And I have to believe that through the grace of God, that's what happened. But you know, I know that not everybody was here last week. There were some people, vacation, sickness, all those kinds of stuff. Some people were here, but they just really weren't here. You you get that, right? I mean, they're here physically, but mentally so much is going on. They're just out there somewhere else. Uh, For some people, they listened intently. They listened to everything. But the truth of the matter is their hearts really, they, they left and their hearts really weren't all that stirred. See, I, I think that James, uh, James understood something. He understood, because he's, he's continuing to teach on it, you would think that seven verses would be enough, but he says, no, we're not done with it yet. Because I think that James understands that there's a potential for us to minimize the sin. It's so common, and it's so normal, and, it's, and we do it without even thinking about it, that we might begin to think, James, is this really that big of a deal? I mean, really. 
I mean, is it really that big of a deal that we treat some people better than other people? I mean, everybody does it. I mean, in business, that's the way that you get and you're able to climb up the corporate ladder. I mean, you suck up to certain people. You treat them nice because of what they can ultimately do to you. Some might think that what James is doing is making a mountain out of a molehill. And so some would say it's really not that big of a deal. James is saying by continuing to put this many verses to this subject, he's saying, guys, you say small deal, I'm telling you it's a huge deal. This sin of partiality, of treating and judging and looking at people and determining their worth just by their outward appearance is a huge deal. And he says it's huge, first of all, because it's inconsistent with the Christian faith. But now he's going to continue to give us three more reasons why it's such a huge deal. Let's take a look at it as we walk through the text of Scripture this morning. First of all, the sin of partiality is a huge deal because it misses the point. It misses the point. Now, I'm going to tell you, my points are not so good to that. Usually they're kind of like all even and balanced and all that kind of stuff. Today they're just kind of all over the place. Just work with me, all right, all right? Just extend grace. But here's the first thing. The sin of partiality is a huge deal because it misses the point. Look at verse 8. The Bible says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you are doing well. Okay, now what I want you to do is, is, is look at the word law, the, that, that phrase royal law. We have to do something with it. Now I'm just going to tell you, if you were to hit the commentaries, they write continuously about what this word royal means, all right? It's an adjective describing the type of law, what does it mean? And here's the bad part, they're all kind of like in disagreement on what exactly it ultimately means. That makes it tough, right? When everybody, when the experts disagree, it makes it hard on somebody like me and somebody perhaps like you. But let me tell you what they are, let me Let me move all that stuff away, all that argumentation away, and let me just tell you what they're agreed upon in its most simplistic understanding why he uses the word royal and what that means. What it means, first of all, is it speaks of the law's source. It's telling us where the law comes from. Where does it come from? It comes from God. It's interesting to me how many times in the Old Testament and the New Testament that the writers were trying to convince us and let us know very clearly, unequivocally, that the commands that they were speaking was from God himself. Some 4,000 times in the Old Testament alone, we see the phrases uh, being used time and time again. Phrases like God said, God spoke, the word of the Lord came, and the Lord commanded. 4,000 times in the Old Testament, they are saying this Law is from God. Move over to the New Testament, same thing. They quote 600 times from the Old Testament. And even the authors there, like like Peter and, and Paul, are claiming as they're writing the commands to the people that what they're writing them is from God. God's the source of, of the law in which they're giving them. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, it says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Now, here's the idea. We have laws. We, we live in a world of laws, don't we? Right? You guys with me? All right, we live in a world of laws. You know, you have laws in your own home. You govern your home with laws. Now, we call them rules. Laws sounds kind of unloving, but we have rules, right? Rules, we have laws, and we tell our children, here's the rule, here's the law, you break the law, consequences for breaking the law, right? So you're the ultimate authority, right? It's your kingdom right there. But above you is what we have local laws, right? State laws. And what that does is that governs what you're doing within the home. They usurp the authority and have a greater ultimate authority over you, even in your own home in certain ways. You you tracking with me? Now, if you break a rule at the home, there's consequences. You break a law of 
a higher governing body like the state, there's greater consequences, right? Now let's track with me. Move up one more time. Then you get to the federal laws, right? I mean, then you're really talking. Have you ever heard somebody, hey, that's a federal offense. Now, I don't know what that means, but you know it's bad, right? Uh, that's a, oh, that's a federal offense. Oh, that's a federal offense? Yes. Or, or hey, dude, he messed with the IRS. The, the federal IRS? You've got to be kidding me. You know that it's serious then. But what happens, what he's doing here is he's sitting there going, look, the law that you're working with is not of this world. It's of the world above. It's from God. The source that I'm about to tell you about and, 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 and the word of God and the command that I give you comes from God himself, the ultimate authority over all people. Now, ch- check this out. The royal law speaks of the law's source, but it also speaks of the law's subjects, okay? The law's subjects. Who is that? Every believer in Jesus Christ. In one sense, it is true that every man, woman, and child who lives on earth is underneath the authority of God's word. All right, it applies to them just like it does believers, unbelievers, whatever. But for the believers in Jesus Christ, it's just that much more true, right? Because it's not something that we seek to disobey. It's something that we seek and view as the highest authority of leading our life. Would you, are you with me? Now, what we do is we determine how we're going to live our life based on four primary authorities in life. Let me, let me give you a little philosophy here. Here it is, ready? Philosophy. All right, I'll wake you up in just a minute. Four major um, um, forces and authority in our life that, re- that base how we live our life. Here they are. First of all, there's tradition, right? Have you ever said, why do you do that? Well, I do that because my mama did it and her mama did it, and so that's kind of why I do what I do. All right, that's authority. Uh, there's also authority of, of reason, okay? Uh, you, you're reasoning your way through the life. What seems the most reasonable thing to do? What seems the right thing to do? And then through reason and through logic, you determine how you're going to live your life. You, you guys with, you tracking with me? Then there's emotion. Now, here's a big one. This is probably the biggest authority in people's life. Hey, I don't feel like doing it. I ain't doing it, right? You guys with me? Uh, or or I, I feel like doing that, so I am going to do that. But what the Bible says is even though all of those authorities are fine, they can be good, they can be right and true, there's one authority that exalts all of those, that supersedes all of those inside of your life. He says, you know what? There might be tradition that you have in church and the way that you grew up, but if it is clearly contrary to the word of God, then that tradition has to go bye-bye, and you've got to submit to God's word. Here's another one. What about reason and rationale? Did you ever read the Bible and you're going, dude, this just doesn't even seem reasonable to me. When it gets to the points, for example, when it says, when it says things like, like to love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully persecute you and say all manner of evil against you, does that seem logically right? No, it seems wrong. So what do we have to do? Jettison what we would think was logical and by faith follow the word of God. Here's another one. What about my feeling? That's the big one, right? And I don't, God, you say to do this, I just don't feel like doing this. We have to die to self. We have to die to that feeling and sit there and say, I won't, be, I won't live and be captive by my emotion. Instead, I'm going to submit myself fully to you, God. Why? Because your word is the ultimate authority. You tracking with me? So he says the royal law, okay? And by royal law, he's speaking of the, the law's source. That is God himself, ultimate authority, all right, over all things, it comes from him. And then it's the word of God for us where we submit fully and we say, hey, God, I'm under your law. And the way that I demonstrate I'm under your authority is that I live out and submit to your word. So far, are we good? All right, so then what does he do there? He moves on 
from, from this particular point. And, and, and what he does is he, he, he gets there and, and he brings out this idea of what the royal law actually refers to. And he says to him, and he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, does that sound familiar, that passage? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's he quoting? His half-brother, Jesus, right? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 22? Um, Matthew t- chapter 22, somebody comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what is the most important law? What is the greatest law of them all? And Jesus says this. He says, now, you know this, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, str- and strength. Let, love him with everything. And he says, but the second is just like it. To do what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is what Jesus tags on to the end of that. He says at the end of that, all the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is what he's saying. You take all of those laws that we have in the Old Testament, all the Mosaic laws, you take them all up, you put them in a big bin, you, you put them in your juicer, okay, and you squeeze them all together. And what comes out all the, the lowest common denominator, the summation of all of that comes out to be this, love. Love God with all your heart vertically. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love him, then you're going to love your neighbor. You're going to show it by loving your neighbor, the people who are around you. Now, here's, here, here, here's what I love about this. Notice what he says at the very end. It, it, wait, so, so, so that just that we understand this, that this works, you see that in the Ten Commandments, right? We have the Ten Commandments. Uh, in the Ten Commandments, the first four of the first Ten Commandments deal with our love for him, right? You should have no other gods before me. You should make no graven image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. What does that deal with? It's showing us how we love God. If we love God, this is what we do. Then the last six have to do with what? With, once again, how we love each other. What are those commands? It's to honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. So we see this. And he says, look, all of this, all of my laws are about love, loving God and loving each other. And then notice what he writes at the very end here. He says, if you do this, if you love your neighbor as yourself, if you recognize God as the ultimate authority, if you submit yourself to the authority of my word, and you truly understand what my word and my commands is all about, and you begin to love each other, notice what he says. He says, you do well. You do well. Now, the word well is the Greek word kalos, and the reason that's significant is it talks that it's good to God. He says, you, if this is what you're doing, if this is how you're loving, and this is how you're living your life, you are bringing joy to the very heart of God. You are doing well. Let me just stop for a second. Some of you are doing really well. Thank you. I mean, you're just doing really well, man. Look, I'm not talking about, hey, you're really doing good in your Bible study. You're really doing good at coming to small group. You're really doing good by doing this and that. What you're really doing well at is you're loving people. You're loving people through Gracie's Kitchen. You're loving people through the, 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 the food ministry here at our church. You're loving people by going to Jacksonville, working with refugees inside of Jacksonville. Look, and it's not just that. Look, you sit there and go, well, I'm doing stuff too. Hey, look, don't get all defensive. I, I'm not trying to leave you out. That's great. It's wonderful. You know why? It's so wonderful because what it means is because you're loving people, it means you get it. It means you get it. You get what this is all about. You get that it's not all just about a bunch of laws. What it is is about loving God with all of our heart and then loving our neighbor as ourself. Now, all of a sudden, he's going to put a big butt right in our way. And nobody really likes a big butt, right? So you sit. It didn't come out the way that I had planned it. But, he says, 
He says, but if, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So understand he's got two things playing here. One side, love your neighbor as yourself, pleasing to God. Here's the other side, taking part of sin, of the, the, uh, taking part in the sin of partiality, sin, you're setting yourself up in opposition to God. Over this side, you're getting it. Guess what? On this side, you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point. He says, you're seeking to do all of these laws, and if you think that the sin of partiality is not big, you've missed the whole point of who God is, of who you are, and what all these laws are all about. You missed the whole point. You know, we, we all missed the point. Are, are you, anybody here like known like, I, I missed the point. I don't, I don't get what the point is, right? Some of you, like, every time I preach, that's how you feel, right? And, and that might be more my fault than you. But you're like, okay, what is the point? Listen, if you're the type of person that goes into the grocery store and buys the new low-fat chips because they have 50% less fat and 50% less cavities, but you, cavities, 50% less calories, but you buy two bags to eat, you missed the point. You got that, right? I'm, I'm just saying, I, I see it all the time, right? All right, I see it. All. You go into McDonald's, you're like, man, I got me a coupon. I'm going to save me some money. This is going to be cool. I go in, man, I'm going to get the Big Mac. I'm going to get the extra large fries. I'm going to get the double after pies because it's, it's two for a dollar. It's cheaper. And then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get the hot fudge sundae. And, and please give me a small Diet Coke with it as well. Okay, look, here's the deal. You eat a meal with over 2,000 calories, another 140 aren't going to give you a problem, all right? Just go with, you miss the point. Oh, and a Diet Coke. You guys get that, right? Missing the whole point. And what he's saying is the same exact thing is here. He gives us an illustration. Notice, notice this person missing the point. Notice his illustration. It's better than mine. He says here, he says, he says, um, he says you, you think, uh, I'm just lost my, my, my spot, sorry. Okay, so he talks about the transgressions. He talks about this sin. And so he comes back and he, and he thinks to us that you're missing the mark, you're, you're trespassing, you're stepping over the line. Here's what you think. You think that this sin of partiality is a small deal. Then you are missing the whole point of my commands to do. All the laws can be narrowed down to loving God and loving man, but the sin of partiality is neither of those. So check this out. This is, this is how Paul says it. And you've heard this verse a lot, but in light of what we're teaching here, it being the main thing about who God is and what it, we're supposed to be about, here's how Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I don't know if you know this, but we have a reputation in the community. We probably have several different reputations in the community about celebration. I'm going to tell you the good one, all right? Here's the good one. The good reputation is this, is that the word of God is preached here, and the people who come here are serious about God's word and are serious disciples of the things of God. I've heard that several times from people within the community. Now, I've heard some other things, too. I'll, I'll, that's for another message. But, but this is what people are saying. But here's what I want you, you, you to understand, and, and this to drive home for you. If we come and we learn theology and we learn the Bible and we're consistent each and every week and we're meeting in small group 
and we're studying and we learn and we teach each other how to study the word of God and we're doing it every single day and we walk out of here and instantly our motivation is to judge somebody merely by what we see, you've missed the whole thing, man. It always amazes me to see how many people that are so active in the ministry of church and yet have a hardened, wicked heart about their service. There's no love in it. There's no love in it. You missed the point. And that's what the sin of partiality is. Number two, the sin of partiality is a huge deal because it corrupts thoroughly. Now notice what it says here. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now, here's, here's, here, here's what I think he's happening. He's, he's, he's following us along. He's following our argumentation that, hey, this isn't a big deal. It's an impartiality. Prejudice isn't a big deal. He goes, first of all, I just proved it's a big deal because it is what God is about. He's about love. That's not love. It's a big deal. But let me just say, for example, that it's not a big deal. Let's just say this is one in, in your thinking that it is just, it's one of the lesser laws, one of the small little insignificant laws that God has ultimately given. It's not but let's just say it is one of the smaller laws. That's the person that he's addressing here. We think like that, right? Big commands, small commands. Big things, big time wickedness, small wickedness. So he's going to address that. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Here's what he's saying. He's not saying that if you break one sin, okay, that you lie, that all of a sudden you are you are you are guilty of literally committing every single other sin. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this, is that you're thinking of the law in the wrong way. You're thinking of the law of all these different parts and portions. You need to think of the law as a cohesive unit, one singular unit, so that if you break one part, the whole thing is impacted. It's kind of like this. If you go out here into our little kitchen, and a little kitchenette, all right? It's not really a kitchen, but a little kitchenette. And you go back there, and on the back wall, there's these two stained glass windows. Not stained glass windows, just windows, all right? And it can't open them, so don't try. And, but one of them is cracked in the bottom portion. Anybody see that? It's, it's kind of cracked, right? And, uh, and what you could do is you could see where it was cracked. It looks like a, a rock hit it, or maybe a stone hit it, or, or maybe a bird committing suicide hit it. I don't know. I've seen that. It's ugly. Something hit it, hit it hard, and chipped the glass, broke the glass, and it kind of, you know, it kind of strained everything there. You know, all those little runs. Well, nine-tenths of the glass is great. But when we get around to finally fixing it, and I'm the type like, well, is it, is it affecting anything? No, then just leave it cracked. I know that's bad. But anyway, so we're like, when, when we go to fix that glass, okay, when we do, we're not just going to fix that one-tenth of it. Why? Because the whole thing has been compromised. It's broken in one spot. But because it's a unit, we have to get rid of the whole thing. The whole thing has been compromised. We have to replace the whole thing. And he says the same way is with the word of God. You're thinking of sin in the wrong way. You're thinks of little compartments and little pieces, and you broke this little piece over here, but you haven't broken over here. He goes, dude, it's not in bits and pieces. It's one whole thing. You break one part, you've broken the whole thing. Do you see what he's saying? And he says, this is why it's so serious, because even if it was a small sin, even if it was teeny, which it's not, we've already recognized, even if it was a small sin, it's a big deal, because it's God's law. And, and, and notice what he's going to do here. In the next part, he's going to kind of give an illustration. I said this in the last one, I was wrong. So anyway, here it is in verse 11. Here's his illustration. He says, do not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
what he's trying to do is he's kind of being a little facetious here. Like, this is a ridiculous argument. He says, you know that God has said, don't commit adultery and don't murder. He goes, it would be like the person getting up going, hey, that's right, I murdered somebody, I'm a murderer, but I ain't no adulterer, right? And you'd sit there and go, bro, and in the word of God says, yeah, you may not have committed adultery, but you are just as much a transgressor as the adulterer is. He goes, you've broke the law, you've broken the law. Now, who is this speaking to? It's speaking to some people who are sitting here, and this is the way that you think. You think of the law in bits and pieces, and here's how I can prove it. Because you think that when you get to heaven, what's in heaven on judgment day is this humongous scale sitting right in the middle of heaven. And what you're going to do is God's going to put all those like sinful, bad things up there, the areas that you've broken the law. But then what he's going to do is he's going to take all those wonderful, awesome things that you've been working so hard on, and you're going to take it with a truckload, and you're just going to dump it on. And you are confident you're going to be accepted by God because of all your good things. Your good things are going to outweigh your bad things. There's a lot of people that think that way. But here's what James is saying. It doesn't work that way, man. It doesn't work that way. Because you've corrupted God's law in this area, all the stuff that you think is so good is already corrupted. Your failure here has called your failure there. And so this is, this is kind of interesting to me because when I was in college, um, doing my undergrad, I was a history major. I don't know if you knew that or not. So I was one of those dorks, okay, dorks who, like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to graduate, but what am I going to do? Go work for Disney World and the tram and the monorail system? If you look over to the right, historically, yeah. I'm like, what am I going to do? And my parents kept going, you're a history major. Do you want to go into law? No. What else do you want to do? I don't, I don't know. Do you want to teach? No. I'm just, I just like history, right? And so, you know, parents are really thinking I've got a bright future, right? And so I'm in history, and, and three years I had been in, it was my sophomore year, my favorite professor was a man by the name of Dr. Hembry. Funny dude, big, jolly man, and the guy was brilliant. Because what he would do is most of our classes, he would come in, and he would go, so where were we last, last time, Mr. Kwiatkowski? And I'd say, well, sir, according to the notes, we were in, you could hear me, you know, sucking up to him, right? Uh, sir, uh, it was December 7th, 1942 in France. And he would sit there, oh, yes, 1942. It was a wonderful year. Uh, then he would begin to just lecture without any notes, hour after hour after hour, all walking you through history. It was amazing, right? And so what you would do is you'd write out all these notes, and he would, you'd literally have like 100 pages of notes front and back by the time you got done. And then he would sit there, and he goes, all right, well, I think it's about final time or mid- midterm time. He goes, it's time for you to be able to see what you've learned. I'm going to give you five essay questions on the 100 pages of notes. I'm going to break it up into five places. He goes, these are the ones you need to study for, which consumed all 100 pages. And he goes, I'm going to pick one. And then on that day, you'll write. And the reason for that is you didn't have time to write more than one. It would take you at least two hours to write, sometimes three hours to write some of the essays in some of his higher level classes. And so he comes in. And, and, and now I got to tell you what I did. I kind of played the odds. Okay, so what I would do is I kind of learned that I was really good at picking which ones he would pick and which ones he wouldn't. So I could use my own logic to sit back and go, I don't think he's going to ask this question, and here's why. And all the classmates would go, which ones he's picking, which ones he's not. I go, he's not going to pick that one. Study these every time, three years, right, 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 right. So this one time, man, and, and, but this is what you need to understand. That you look, you're judging me, okay? But let me just explain this. I knew those other four questions like the back of my hand. When he asked those questions, I was getting an A. 
I'm telling you, I knew it forward and backward, all the dates, all the times, all the names. I knew it all. I went into this fully prepared, fully confident. The day of judgment came. He sits there and up on the board, he writes the one question I did not study for. I can't. Not that I didn't study for it. I didn't even know what the question meant, okay? I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I did not take any time to be able to look at it. So here's what I do. I look at my paper, my Scantron, all right, with all the little pages on it. And, and so I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you know, uh, I, I got nothing. So I write my name on it. That's all that's on the sheet of paper. I take it up to him, and I go, Dr. Hembry, can I talk to you for a moment? Well, sure. What seems to be happening? He looks at my note, my, 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 my test, and he sits there, and I says, look, I didn't study that question. But I know all the other four completely and fully. If you were to ask me any of this, let me ask you this. Is there any way that I can answer maybe two of the other questions? Or I'll answer all four of the other questions. If, if I could ask, answer all four of the questions and show you that I really, really know 80% of everything there is to know, I go, w- would that be okay? And he says, no. He says, because you're not being judged on 80% of what you know, but 100% of what I gave you. It's the same exact thing that the Lord does. The Lord sits back and he says to us, hey, listen, you've got to understand this. If you broke one portion, if you fail in one portion, you get a zero. I got a zero on the test. I failed that test fully and completely. Listen, listen to what Galatians 5.3 says. It says that he teaches us that each of us are obligated, listen to this, to keep the whole law. Not part of it, all of it. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You have to do them consistently, constantly, perfectly. Guess what? That's hopeless, isn't it? That's why the gospel is such good news. Where we failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. Where you and I could not succeed because we were born with a sin nature and have fallen in many ways. Jesus Christ, who was not born with a sin nature, was tempted in every way, yet he sinned not. Guess what Jesus did? He passed the test for us. He did for us what we could not do. There's a third thing, and I'll go over this very quickly. The sin of partiality is a huge deal. Why? Because it misses the point, because it corrupts thoroughly, and number three is because it leads to judgment. Now notice very quickly, he says, so speak in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Let me unpack that real quick. The verb tenses for speak and to act is a present tense verbs, which means this. It means to keep on speaking and to keep on acting. How? Consistently with who you are in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the command that he's giving us. He says, what is the motivation? The motivation, he says, is the judgment. He says, because, why? We're going to be judged by the law of liberty. What's the law of liberty? Did you notice he's already used that back in chapter 1? Chapter 1 in verse 25, he spoke of the, of the law of liberty. Let me just sum up for you. This is what it means. That when Jesus Christ came to save us, he not only saved us from our sins, but he gave us and empowered us with his Holy Spirit now to live and to obey the law that God has called us to obey. We have the ability to obey his law. Are you, are you with me with that? And he says, we're going to be judged. How? according to the law of liberty. We're going, to be, we're going to be judged based on what all that God has given us and entrusted us with. We're going to be based on what we did with it. See, for the believer in Jesus Christ, when we stand before God, we won't sit at the white throne judgment. The white throne judgment is when sinners who were not saved by grace, who have rebelled against God, stand before God, and every wicked thing that they have done will be judged at that point. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we're not at the white throne judgment. Instead, we're at the judgment seat of Christ. 
And we come before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, and it says, hey, listen, you don't need to go over there. Your sins are paid for. And when we're judged before God, our sins are not judged. Why? Romans 8, 1. Romans 8, 1 teaches us very clearly that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't God good? We continue to sin even after we're believers in Jesus Christ, but God says, I forgive them all, past, present, and future. That fear is that when you get into heaven, that everybody's gonna see on the big screens everything that you did wrong, right? No, it's under the blood. It's covered under the blood. But there is a judgment. But what is going to be judged? Not our sins, but our works. But our works. The Bible is very, very clear about this. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done and the body, whether good or for evil. So here's what's going to happen. God's going to say, I gave you my grace. I gave you my mercy. I gave you my love. I gave you my gifts. I gave you my word. I gave you your money. I gave you your abilities. What did you do for me once you got it? Once you got the Holy Spirit, what did you do with it? And then what the Bible says then is in 1 Corinthians 3, 12, it says that by fire we are going to be judged. And it says, and whatever is built on the foundation of gold, silver, and precious stones, that simply means everything that we did for the glory of God with the right motivation is going to remain and we're going to be rewarded for it. He says, everything that has a foundation of wood, hay, and stubble, that means the things that we did not do in, in, in honor unto God, for the purpose of God, for the glory of God, all that's just going to be burned away and nothing's going to be left. He said, for some people, this is what's going to happen. Good. Some are going to be blessed, but some are going to be saved as by fire. What that means is all their stuff is going to go up poofy because they did not use what God had entrusted them for, for the glory of God. Now, follow me, for the glory of God. He says they will be saved, but notice this, there will be a deep sense of regret and sorrow. Why? You say, well, wh why would they be sorrowful? They're going to have eternal life because here's why they're going to be sorrowful. Because all of a sudden, the overwhelming sense of all that God had entrusted us with and called us to do, we were not faithful in. So here's the point. How does that deal with the sin of partiality? He says, understand that one day, all the grace and the mercy that I've showed you time and time again, every second of every day, I've given to that. Is there ever, let me ask you this question. Ever a second of the day that God's not dispensing grace and mercy on you? Ever? Ever? Never constantly giving you grace and mercy. If not, you'd explode into oblivion, all right? Grace and mercy all the time. Here's what he says. You get down here, and he says, but you could not extend it to anybody else? All the grace and infinite grace and mercy I gave you, but yet you continued in a sin of partiality. You couldn't bend that out. And he says, in each believer, there's gonna be a clear sense that we failed at that point. Now, that's one side of the judgment. One more point. You, you, you with me? Last point, here it is. Last little part. He goes on, he says, for the judgment, here's the second thing. You think that that got your attention? Notice this, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it may be, at best, if you continue on judging people the way that you are, at best, he says, it might be that you lose some rewards and then you have regret on the day of judgment. At worst, it's going to demonstrate that you were never truly in the faith. The Bible teaches that we can only give what it is that we receive. And the Bible says that if we receive the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, his son, 
that we are to take that mercy and the grace and we are to bend it out to other people. Love each other unconditionally, loving them despite what they look like, despite how they act. Y'all following me with this? We bend it outwards. And he says, the evidence of you not extending grace and mercy because of your sin and partiality is a demonstration that you never tasted of my grace and mercy to begin with. It's kind of like this. Last week, and I'll close with this illustration. Last week, we had child dedication. Do you remember that? And it really went well. It was so nice. Little kids up here. It was awesome. Dedicating parents, dedicating themselves and their kids to the Lord. Well, guess what? We weren't the only ones doing that. A buddy of mine was doing the same exact thing. And they had a bunch of kids, much larger church, had a bunch of kids up there. And so they were much more formal than us. So they had like all the list of all the relatives and friends who were there. And this poor guy had to get up. I always feel bad for the guy that has to mention everybody. He gets up and he says, this family has this and the grandparents are this and the aunts and uncles are this and the people that are this and that and cousins and this. And he's got he's to mention all of these people, right? This stuff drives me nuts. And so he gets to the end, he gets done, he walks away, and immediately after the service, this older couple comes up to him and says, we've never been offend- so offended in all our life. He says, I'm sorry. He goes, what, what is it that we did? He goes, we were here, we gave the name that we were going to be here, but you didn't mention our name as the grandparents to this child. Now, what are you going to do? He goes, I am so sorry. He goes, I am so sorry that I didn't mention your name. I, I do see that it's here. I must have just overglanced it. Would you please forgive me? Here's how they responded. Oh, I'll forgive you. He goes, I, I, I'll forgive. That, that, that's not a problem. I'll forgive you. But something else has to happen. This was just too hurtful. Now, first of all, that's not forgiveness. Now, you sit there and you go, how can somebody who is a believer in Jesus Christ act in such a way? I'll tell you, you got to wonder if they're really truly born again. Why? Because they know nothing about grace. They know nothing about mercy. They know nothing about love. And so what he's finally saying is, hey, guys, it's a huge deal for us not to judge other people. Because if you've received the grace and the mercy of God, where God doesn't judge your works, but instead what he does, he he extends love and, and encouragement to you, then if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be able to bend that outwards as well. So in light of the fact that there's a judgment coming, can you and I jettison any part of the sin of partiality in our life? What I love at the very end, did you notice that very last word? The very last word is this. He says, he says in the scriptures, he says, for mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. You know what it means? No matter how much you've sinned, no matter how guilty you are, no matter what you've done, his mercy and his grace is greater than your sin. The grace that Jesus Christ extends to you because of his completed work on Jesus Christ is greater than any sin you could have committed against him. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. We just have to receive it. What do we do? Repent and believe. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We, we honor you. God, my heart is moved that it, it's such a complex message. But God, I pray that when we walk away, that through the complexity, we won't miss the simplicity. That God, the sin of partiality is not of you. It ought not to be in our hearts. God, it's missing the whole point. God, even if it was a small command, it is a huge deal because breaking any of your laws is huge. And that, God, one day we are going to stand before you and give an account of all that you've given us and how we've bent it outwards to others. God, this is a huge deal. God, I pray this morning, if people weren't gripped last week, that this week we will come, we'll search our hearts, we'll seek forgiveness, and that you will empower us to treat each other with love and with mercy. 
We love you, and we praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Our brother's going to sing, and will you respond? I'll be down here if you'd like to pray, or the altar's open if you'd like to respond in some other way. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice, you became nothing, poured out to death. And many times I've wondered at your gift of life, and I'm in that place once again. Yes, I'm in that place once again And once again I look upon that cross where you died I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside Once again I thank you Once again I pour out my Now you are exalted to the highest place, King of the heavens, where one day I'll bow. But for now, I'll marvel at your saving grace, and I'm full of praise once again. Yes, I'm full of praise once again. All right, well, amen. You may be seated. Our ushers are coming forward at this time. And Brother Ronnie, one of our elders, is going to come and pray for our offer offering today. Brother Ronnie. Pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day you gave us, God. Father, thank you that you allow us to meet as believers in your house, Father. Today we have 